have a seat. Uh, I want to apologize on the front end. My, my throat is a little bit messed up. My voice is almost totally shot. Uh, my son uh, was in a t-ball game yesterday, and it was an awesome spectacle. Uh, and then I went to a U2 show, and that was, that was a big deal too. So anyway, I'm sorry that it's kind of shy. You'll have to put up with me. If you would, grab your notes out of your handout. We are continuing a series called Unstuck. I am so pleased with what has been happening in this series. So thankful for what God has been doing. Incredible stories coming out of it. But I do want to let you know we're wrapping the series up next week. Please plan on coming back and being with us as we conclude sort of this entire process of what it looks like to live an unstuck life. But I want to begin with just a a recap, the big truths that we've uncovered thus far. The first, uh, realize that I'm not God. I admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable in certain areas. And so we we unpacked that on week one. We talked about how this is an incredibly humbling truth that we embrace, that that somehow we buy into this illusion that we're the God of our own little universe, that we can save ourselves, that we can control others, control situations. We can't. We just realize we're not God. And it's an incredibly humbling work, but that's the first work of deconstruction that we need to to begin the process of being unstuck. The second big truth, we earnestly believe that God exists, right? I'm not God, but God does exist, that I matter to him and that he has the power to help me recover. Number three, the big truth is that we consciously choose to commit all our life and all our will into Christ's care and control. And the fourth big truth is that we openly examine and confess my faults to myself, to God, and to someone I trust. Now, this was last week, Memorial Day weekend. Dr. G did an incredible job unpacking this reality, and the encouragement was that we would take sort of a ruthless spiritual inventory, and that we would walk through that act of confession, confessing to God, confessing to ourselves, right? Sometimes we have to take the blinders off, and then confessing to someone that we trust. And and again, that's an incredibly humbling work as well, when we really do kind of put pen to paper and, and take a look at the tangible evidence that we're not as good as we think we are, that we, we've got this messiness in all sorts of areas of our lives, and it really does continue to shatter all sorts of illusions that we build as, as fallen humans in a, in a fallen world. Now, I just want to say very gently and lovingly that as we have gone through this series today and next week, I, I want you to understand that this entire thing, that these are truths for you, okay, that, that God wants to, to speak into your life through this series, through these truths. I've heard so many cool stories, uh, things like this. Hey, Mike, I am so glad that we're walking through this stuff because my sister has been coming every week and she really needs this stuff, you know. Or, you know what, I'm so thankful that you, you tackled that last week because my husband was here and he, you know, he really needed to get this stuff. Listen, I am so thankful that your sister was here and I am, I am you know, so grateful that your husband was here, but these truths are for you, okay? They're for you too. It's not just for your friends, not just for those around you. Like they are for you. God wants you to internalize these truths. He wants you to internalize his scripture. He wants you to invite him in so that he can do the work of getting you unstuck wherever you are stuck. Now, I, I just want you to know that uh, we, we thought, you know what, let's go ahead and give some kind of a tangible embodiment of what it looks like when all we do is deflect, right, these truths and we put them on other people. So, I hope you enjoy this video. Well, hi there, my name is Marty Flipman, and uh, today I'd like to just be really open and frank about my struggles and my journey I just feel like uh, this series has been uh, just a real blessing to everyone around me because uh, I'll be honest, most of my friends could really use it. If I struggle with anything, you know, I think I struggle with uh, helping the people around me a little bit too much. Um, I am more than willing to confess my faults um, to the people around me um, as long as I don't know them or will ever see them again. Well, last week at church, uh, we did a personal inventory, and I just thought that was such a great thing, you know, and I uh, have actually put together, 
you know, my personal inventory of the uh, people around me. I, I just, you know, I love my wife Martina, but she really struggles with um, giving me enough time alone away from her and the kids. My kids are the greatest, um, but they're kind of needy a lot of the time. I feel like the little one should have been unstuck from her diapers a long time ago, but you know, that's just uh, her dad talking and uh, her dad's probably right. You know, when it comes to, uh, you know, personal inventory of the people around me, I'd like to speak to the customers that always walk into the shop I work at. You know, customers, uh, my job would be a lot easier um, if you didn't come in. So you could get unstuck from shopping where I work for once. People um, in other countries, when I go to your country, I don't appreciate that you don't speak English. Um, you know, it's not all about you. You know, I don't hesitate to say that Maybe you should check yourself before you wreck yourself, Mr. Ice Cube. If you're a police officer and you don't have a mustache, it's just a missed opportunity. George Lucas, I love your movies, and uh, you know I think you should probably add some more stuff and re-release them. You know, uh, with struggles um, that I need to confess, I, I, there aren't a lot. I don't struggle with codependency, uh, but I could if you want me to. You know, I uh, struggle with my, uh, my impressions being a little bit too good uh, sometimes, you know, um, like an impression that I do all the time is uh, Jim from The Office. Here, I'll show it to you. Uh, you know, taking these personal inventories of the people around me and helping them through these steps of healing, even when it seems like they really didn't want to, has helped me figure out who they are and uh, why they could really use a friend like me. <laughs> now, I, I could tell that most of you understood that was tongue-in-cheek, right? That was not, uh, he wasn't a, a real testimony. Uh, and if you thought that he was, please come talk to me because you need to get unstuck in a couple of places. Um, but when we just deflect, when we don't take these truths and these challenges to ourselves, that's a whole lot like we sound to God, right? That, that he's, he's up there saying, no, no, this is for you, that I want to walk with you. I want to do a work in you and birth this new life in you. And, and as long as you keep deflecting to other people, you're missing all sorts of good things that I have for you. And so if we can be on the same page, if we can understand, no, this is stuff for us, we can go to big truth number five. This is on your notes, it's up on the screen. We voluntarily submit to every change God wants to make in my life and humbly ask him to remove my character defects. Okay, voluntarily submit to every change that God wants to make. Okay, that's big, that, that is holistic, right? But we, we humbly ask God to work in our lives and remove our character defects. And Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 6, happy are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. Happy are those, blessed are those who, who wanna do what God wants, who wanna live the life that God wants for them to live. When we are right with God, and we are in right relationship with him and we're walking with him, then we are truly happy. We are set free that we live a blessed life. And that's what we wanna go after in this big truth. And, and, and you know what, I, I know that in a moment like this, we're in church, we've just been singing songs about God's love and grace, we just saw you know, 15 different people celebrating the new life they have in Christ through baptism, very, very cool, everybody's like, yes, I, I want this. And then we leave this place and we go into our lives, right? We enter our work week or our school week or whatever the week looks like and, and something comes along called temptation. And it, and it just messes with us, right? It begins to, to, to cloud our perspective. And I've, I've found a few quotes about temptation. You guys probably understand this, you know, much more personally. Sam Levinson says, lead us not into temptation. Just tell us where it is. We'll find it. I, that's kind of the reality that we live in. You know, now that I'm 40, I have a different view of temptation entering into the whole, you know, the middle age kind of a realm. I found this quote from Dan Bennett. Middle age is having a choice between two temptations and choosing the one that will get you home earlier. 
I can appreciate that. And then the third one, Mark Twain, uh, I deal with temptation by yielding to it. Uh, Probably not the the pattern you want to follow. Uh, Here's the reality. Temptation is going to be universal. It will happen. And, and we need to recognize, number one, how we currently deal with temptation, and then we need to be open to how God wants us to deal with it. So let me give you what would be a very typical sin cycle. And, and you might recognize this all over your life. You might recognize this just in one or two areas. But uh, you, you're living your life in an area that we're just going to call sanity. You know who you are, you know what your convictions are, you know what you believe, you know what your values are, and you're living your life. You're loving God, you're loving your family, you're, just, you're cruising through life, you're sane. And then something comes into your life called temptation. And it's just, you know, it's just a little thought, or it's just a little glimpse, or uh, you just, you know, uh, uh, I had a pastor named Pastor Tom Holliday. He said, temptations are like the birds that fly overhead, right? They're just happening all the time. We just need to recognize temptations are reality. But what happens is when we get tempted by that area that we are especially broken over or our woundedness uh, is, is around or an area where we have used to mitigate our pain for so long, um, we move from temptation into an area called fixation. And what that looks like is we begin to think about that temptation and imagine what it's like to give in to that temptation. And we play over different scenarios again and again in our mind. We fixate on it. Now, biologically, there are all sorts of things that go along with fixation. So it's not just a spiritual reality that's happening. There's all sorts of physiological realities and effects that are mirroring the fixation. Your heart rate goes up, right? Your, your, your pulse starts to race. Your breathing becomes shallow. All sorts of endorphins begin to fire. Your adrenaline rises, starts to shoot through your body. And the longer you fixate on it, the higher and higher those uh, physiological realities become in your body. Till pretty soon, because of a trick of your mind and a trick of your body and the influence of this temptation in your life, you become convinced that the only way out is through, and you act out. You give in. You uh, take the substance, or you look at the website, or you buy the shoes, or you eat the cake, or whatever it is that is your deal that you've been fixating on. You think there's no use fighting it anymore, and so you give in. And the interesting thing is no matter what your thing is, When you give in, there will be some moments of pleasure and relief. There will be, right? If there was no moment of pleasure, no moment of relief, uh, it would never ever look good to you. So there, there is something pleasurable about giving in. But then almost immediately, something called remorse happens. And you begin to recognize, you know, once the high wears off, uh, once you get the credit card statement, you begin to realize, you know what, that thing was not the savior that I built it up to be. That thing did not deal with my pain the way that I thought it would deal with my pain. And not only do I have to live my life now with the consequences of that new reality that I've piled on myself, but I have to deal with the psychological effects that I'm now carrying. I have to deal with the relational effects of saying yes to that sin. And I have to deal with the spiritual effects between me and God. And so it is, it is a tough, tough cycle, but you know, we're down in the area of sanity. We can look clearly and objectively at where we are, recognize that that whole cycle was folly, and, uh, and we have remorse over it, but the chances are fairly good that we'll enter into that cycle again at some point, okay? Now, I don't know where this is in your life. I think, you, you know, the reality of temptation is that there are, there are uh, only a handful of temptations that are common to humanity, that for thousands of years, only a handful of temptations. However, in this room, there would be different manifestations of those things, okay? So when I say it's unique to you, I mean the road that you have walked and the brokenness that you have and and the area that you fixate on, all those are gonna be slightly unique. They're gonna be different than the person sitting next to you. 
So let me just tell you this by way of example. I hope you understand. I don't necessarily think this is a real example, but I just want you to apply it into the place in your life where it is real. But let's say uh, you're, uh, you know, long day, uh, you finish, you know, cleaning up or whatever, and you end up getting in bed, and it's late at night, right? And, and your wife's already asleep, and you get in bed, and you lay down, and then suddenly as you lay down, your head hits the pillow, a thought goes over, you know what, there's a piece of chocolate cake downstairs on the counter, and you think, oh, that would be so good as a midnight snack. But then you remember that you've promised your wife that she could have the last piece of chocolate cake. And you remember that you've promised, together you've promised not to have any food after 10 o'clock because you're trying to get healthy, you're in your middle ages. I'm not speaking personally. I'm just saying that (laughs) you've made some kind of commitments around this cake. And so you know that this is now representing sin. And and you're like, okay, that's temptation. Uh, Let me just go to sleep. And you lay back on your bed and you look up at the ceiling, but literally all you can see at this point is chocolate cake. And you start to imagine how good that cake is going to taste and how delicious your wife's frosting is and how moist it is and, and you're just, your, your um, taste buds start to go and you're salivating there and, 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 and you're thinking, oh, you know, you're picturing, you know, German chocolate cake and then devil's food cake because obviously it's temptation and all this stuff. And, and, and you're fixating on this thing and your heart's beating and your, your breathing is shallow and there's some endorphins that are involved here and, and you roll over and you want to go to sleep but at this point you can't because your body's starting to get jacked up now that you're fixated on this temptation. And pretty soon after an hour or so of rolling over, rolling over, you just say, you know what, forget it. I'm going to give in. And you get, get up and you go downstairs and you consume that cake, right? And you're blissful in the moment of enjoyment. But, but that moment is over very quickly, isn't it? And you realize, oh, no, I've got to cover up the evidence. And so you think, oh, how do I do? So, so you, instead of just cleaning up, I'm going to bake another cake, right? And so you grab all this stuff, and you bake the cake, and you, you, know, you stay up, and you try to get the frosting just right, and you make this cake, and you get it out, and you wash the pots. You're thinking, okay, time for bed. Then you realize this didn't cover up anything. It's a whole cake. She knew there was only one piece left. So you eat three quarters of a cake, so and you put it on the same plate, and you, you set it up exactly that, you know, you're like, okay, I've covered my sin, I am 14 pounds heavier, I'm going to have cake-induced nightmare, and, and you go, and you lay down, and remorse has totally hit, you recognize you've completely bombed this scenario, and you're like, but at least I've covered my sin, and then the kicker is your wife wakes you up in the morning and says, honey, why do you have chocolate frosting on your face, and you've covered up nothing, Right, And now you have to deal with all of the effects of your sin. And again, it's, it's an absurd reality, right? Nobody, right, has had that experience. But apply it in your life where it does apply, where, where it matters, where it fits. Because that same cycle of temptation, fixation, acting out, remorse, covering up, it happens again and again and again. And I don't know where the cycle is in your life. I just know you've got that cycle. And, and, and you know, when I say we're all unique, I just mean that, that all of us have different pain. All of us have used different sorts of levers to alleviate our pain. And, and so that's why the Bible says you should never, ever judge, right? You, should ne- you don't know what the other person's gone through. You don't know how, how real this temptation is in your life. You know, if your deal is uh, shopping and, and you have racked up thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on credit card debt just because you can't say no to your shopping impulse. Because somehow in your brokenness, you've associated that new purchase with some momentary pain reduction therapy for you. And so you keep going back again and again, and you know it's wrong, and you know it's painful for your life, and you're wrecking your family finance and the whole bit. And and somebody else looks at that, and shopping's not their deal. They say, well, can't you just not go to the mall? Can't you just not, you know, go on eBay or whatever it is? Like, can't you just stay away from that thing? Because they don't see your brokenness. They haven't walked your journey. But there's a place in their life where you look at it, you go, well, can't you just say no to that website? Can't you just stop going there? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, friends, we're all unique. This is a cycle that, that happens again and again in all sorts of places in your life. 
And, and that's what happens, but God is asking, and this big truth, number five, is saying, you know what, we would invite Jesus into the equation. And when temptation comes, as it inevitably will, what we wanna do is we wanna interrupt it right at the front end. We wanna interrupt it right when it comes into our consciousness. And we wanna interrupt it and restore ourselves to sanity very quickly. And this is what big truth number five is all about, that we wanna submit to these changes that God wants to make. We wanna invite him into our lives uh, right at the front end so that we don't keep going after this sin cycle. And in order to interrupt the cycle, we need to simply ask him. We need to humbly invite him into that very place of our brokenness. So the first way we interrupt the cycle is through prayer. We simply pray to God. We say, dear Jesus, would you please come into this moment? Would you come into this place in my life? Remove my defects, remove the problems in my life and my heart that caused this sin to look so good and so appealing. Whatever the lies are surrounding that sin, that it's going to make you feel good, that it's going to save you, that it's going to alleviate your pain, whatever it is, you need to invite Jesus right there into that place where he would expose those lies and reveal the truth of his love right there. And then you ask him, Lord, would you help me build structure in my life so that I can stay away from the temptation and so I can walk in wholeness with you? And you humbly ask him to remove your shortcomings. Friends, you can't do this without Jesus. You, you come to the end of yourself, and then you say, Jesus, I, I, I'm through. My strength only goes so far. My willpower only goes so far. I need you to come and to meet me here in this broken place. And just remember, friends, Jesus is close to the brokenhearted. Right? Your humility is the most attractive thing in this equation to Jesus, that you would invite him in. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So prayer is the first step. The second step is partnering. Prayer and partner. Those are the two steps. Partnering is where you would have buddies or friends in your life that would be with you as you uh, invite them in. And the idea is that you want to walk towards wholeness. They're going to help you walk there. And so in the moments of temptation, you can call them, you can text them, you can show up at their house. You know, this is, these are the kind of friends that's like 24-7, anytime, night or day, uh, I'm available for you. I want to be your buddy. I want to be strength in your life. Now, if you go back to that chocolate cake analogy, right, you're there and, you, you know, your wife's asleep already. Uh, you know, if, if that's kind of your scenario, you just wake your wife up, Right. And she would help you restore to sanity and, you know, uh, get clarity and all that stuff. Uh, for some of you, waking your wife up, that's not a safe thing to do, right? <laughs> I understand that. So I was talking to Pastor Drew this week, and he says, in Celebrate Recovery, they recommend minimum of three, but they pitch three to five people in your life that you have their cell phone number. You can text them, call them anytime. And the idea is, on the, uh, the first hand, everybody's so busy that if you only have one friend, there's always a chance that you're going to call and they're unavailable. They can't, they can't take that call. So you have a few friends, right? So the, the, the first guy's, you know, out golfing or whatever, you've got another buddy to call. The other thing Drew said is he said, a lot of times if you have an issue that you've dealt with for a long time in your life, let's say anger and you're really beginning to get ticked off about something, well, you call a friend and you, de you know, kind of decompress with that friend for 20 minutes or so, you hang up the phone, and maybe you're still kind of ticked. So you need to call somebody else, and I don't know how long it takes for you to restore to sanity, but you know, for some of you, it might be, you know, I'd like to speak with a friend 20 minutes, and I need 1,800 friends to call while I settle down. You know, I, I don't know what that looks like, but the idea is you want to interrupt the cycle on the front end so that you can restore yourself to sanity and be the person that you know you are, the person that God has saved, the person whose love, uh, or, or rather the person walking under the covering of God's love. So you pray, you partner, and the last thing to remember is anytime you remove something from your life, you have to add something back to it, okay? Now, let me just give you an illustration. You've probably heard this illustration before. But I, I, I want to clarify how our minds work. When you tell yourself, don't do something, 
The problem is your mentality almost always focuses on the thing that you're not supposed to do. I'll make this really clear. Right now, do not picture in your mind a yellow duck. Did anybody picture a yellow duck? Yeah. It's the way our, our, the power of suggestion works is the moment you say, don't eat that, don't buy that, don't look at that, the moment that that's your consciousness, you are inevitably, you're going to be drawn to that thing. So anytime you remove something from your life, you need to add something positive back in, okay? Uh, you remove evil, you replace it with good. You remove chocolate from your life, replace it with strawberries, You remove smoking from your life, replace it with running. You remove punching your husband with punching a bag, right? Like many things that you can remove. When you remove something, you have to replace it with something healthy, something better, something that will work for you. Uh, I was talking to a buddy this week who, when he was quitting smoking, he took, you know, smoking out where he literally had all this time on his hands that he had to fill. So he replaced it with exercise, Uh, For me, many of you know, I'm a California transplant. And so virtually, uh, my addiction to warm water surfing has been absolutely um, removed from my life, right? Not by my own choice, but by God's, I blame him. And... And, and so there's no expression of warm water surfing in my life. And, and so I've realized I've got to replace that with something else. And so uh, actually last Christmas, my brother turned me on to this thing. It's called a ripstick. Now, I, it's, it's kind of an odd little skateboard type thing. It's just got two wheels. You ride it almost exactly like you ride a uh, surfboard. And um, except for the waves that the ripstick requires are the waves of a parking lot. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we've got, we've got a parking lot here. And so I, uh, I have used this, and I have enjoyed this, and will continue to do so. Just a hint, if you see Pastor Mike on the ripstick, don't bother him. He's working out his addictions, and uh, he's getting healthier. So you just have to understand, anytime you remove something, you have to replace it with something better, something that is healthy, something that will help you continue on the path to wholeness. And let me say what I think maybe the most important thing to remove and replace is. Remove making decisions in isolation and replace it with making decisions in community. Friends, you've heard us talk about life groups at Overlake again and again and again. And the idea of being in a safe community where people love you and they love Jesus and they want to love you as you walk with Jesus, uh, that is an incredibly powerful tool to help us walk this road of health and healing, okay? So this is what it takes for character change, that we would invite Jesus into these places, ask him to remove our character defects, that we would pray and partner I put on your notes some conditions of character change. And these are internal conditions, right? Like weather conditions, if you want to go hot air ballooning, you need certain conditions to happen. These are the conditions you need inside in order to be ready to see life change become a reality for you. And the first, if you're filling in the blanks, be entirely ready for character change. Focus on the word entirely. Be entirely ready so it's one thing to just say, yeah, God, I'm ready, you know, uh, having a conversation with a, with a buddy. Yeah, I think I'm ready for this. It's another thing to be entirely ready, no matter what God wants to do, as he heals and, and changes and, and removes those character defects. My buddy Greg used to work at a camp where students would come in and do a high ropes course. And he said it was so funny because you'd talk to the kids on the ground as they were getting their harness on and getting their helmet on, and, and these kids would be like, oh, I am so ready for this. I'm so excited. I can't wait to get up there. I'm going to jump off that platform, grab that trapeze. This is going to be so fun. I'm going to nail this thing. And then as they climbed up that 100-foot pole, they, they started, to, they were entirely ready. And as they climbed up the pole, it's like, oh, you know, I'm sort of ready. I'm still kind of excited about this. And then they would get to the top and stand on the edge of that platform, and then they would be like frozen, okay? Um, maybe I wasn't so ready after all. Suddenly there's fear as I take a look at, at the height that I'm up and the edge that I'm standing on, and I recognize this is an all or nothing kind of a reality. I'm afraid I'm not entirely ready to do this. 
So I would just encourage you, be entirely ready. And I want to say, only you can. Your buddy can't be ready for you. And your spouse can't be ready for you. Your kids can't be ready for you. Your parents can't be ready for you. So only you can be entirely ready to have God work and change your life. Okay, so be entirely ready. The second thing, uh, oh, oh, rather, uh, James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord. He will lift you up. Everything we're talking about in this series, friends, requires humility, a deep and an authentic humility that we would honestly say before the Lord again and again, God, we are dependent upon you. We need you to help us. Even with this idea of being being ready. I'm only sort of ready, God. Would you work at my life to make me entirely ready? Okay. The second fill-in here is we identify which defects we want God to work on first. Identify which defects you want God to work on first. Hopefully, these are the ones that are causing the most pain to you, to your spouse, to your loved ones. Work on the biggest ones first. And I was processing with our team this last week, we were talking about what God's been doing through this Unstuck series. The, the reality is this. Let's say every single one of us identifies one or two big issues in our life, areas that are causing us pain, others pain, God pain. And we begin to walk this road in humility and honestly ask him to work in our lives. We work these steps, and we see over the course of the next two years, we see God completely restore us out of these areas of brokenness, that he completely brings victory, that he completely brings healing and wholeness in these one or two big areas of our life. You know what's gonna happen in two years? You're gonna look at your life, and you're gonna find out there are other areas that God needs to work on. Yeah, because you're kind of screwed up, Okay. <laughs> That's truth, and I'm screwed up too. We're all a bit of a mess. And I wish that it was like you've only got two issues, and if you work on those, then you'll be perfect. You won't be. Because, friends, those two issues right now, they're so big in your life that because they're so big, you can't see all these other areas that God needs to work on. Right? So let's deal with those big issues first, and then we'll be free to identify the other issues that God needs to work on. Friends, that's why this is a journey. That's why this whole faith thing, this life, it's a journey as we walk with Jesus. So be entirely ready. Identify which defects you want God to work on first. And then the last fill in there, take it one day at a time. One day at a time. A lot of us like to make ultimatum statements to others and to ourselves. I will never do this again. That will never happen. Or we bargain with God. God, I, 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 you know, I, you just change this about me and, and, and I will never, ever do this again. If I do this again, you know, you could take my house. You could take my car. You can, whatever. You know, you're, you're bargaining things. You have no business bargaining. You're, God, never, ever again. I never want to walk this road again. Never want to do this thing again. Friends, I would, I would counsel you move away from those kind of statements. Instead of the never agains, instead of the ultimatums, instead of the bargaining, I, I would encourage you to, to say, today, Jesus, I'll walk with you. The next 24 hours, I'm walking with you. Or maybe for some of you, that's too big. And so you break it down. You know what, Jesus, this morning, I'm going to walk with you. I, I'm going to walk in wholeness and health with you. Or maybe for some of you, it's like an hour at a time. This next hour, I'm going to walk with you. And so in that hour, you're conscious of Jesus and you're walking with Jesus and you're holding tightly to Jesus. And you know what? You walk that hour and then the next hour starts and you say again, Jesus, I'm gonna walk this hour with you. And you walk that hour with him. And then the next hour starts. Jesus, I'm gonna walk this hour with you. Right? And you just do it in increments of time as you walk in health and wholeness with Jesus. And pretty soon, you've, you've packed up a lot of health and a lot of wholeness, but continue to focus on the one day at a time, one step at a time mentality. It's like uh, taking a road trip at night, right? Your headlights don't show you the entire way you're going. They just show you the next 100 yards or so, but you can cross an entire continent that way, going 100 yards at a time. Okay, that's how I would encourage you to walk this faith journey, that you walk in wholeness, that you walk in health, Okay. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. And that's why this message is called letting it go. Because we're just letting our, our pride go. We're letting our sense of control go. And we're moving into submission 
underneath God's care and God's authority. And he's gonna be the one that's faithful. He will strengthen us. He will take care of us, okay? Uh, you've, uh, uh, raise your hand if you ever heard the phrase, let go and let God. You ever hear that phrase, let go and let God? Yeah, this is what it's talking about, that we let go of control and we allow God to be God, okay? And this brings us to big truth number six. Evaluate all my relationships, offer forgiveness to those who've hurt me, and make amends for harm I've done to others, except when to do so would harm them or harm others. So we evaluate relationships, we forgive where we need to forgive, and we make amends where we need forgiveness, And I love how Jesus approaches this. In Matthew 5, 7, we read, happy are the merciful, or blessed are the merciful. That means we have mercy for those who have wounded us. And then a couple of verses later, Matthew 5, 9, he says, happy are the peacemakers, which means that we make peace with those we have wounded. Okay, so Jesus unpacks both of these realities, making amends and forgiving. And, and you would recognize that so far, the big truths have, have dealt with mostly just you and God. But in this reality, this is the horizontal relationships in our lives. That we are now inviting God to help us make peace a, a, across the board. And, and Jesus makes such a big deal about this, about forgiving and about offering, for, about offering forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. And he says this in Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. He's saying, it's so important that even as you're coming into the presence of God and you're there to worship him and receive his love and his care and his grace and his blessing, even as important as that is, he says, don't proceed. Instead, stop where you are and go and make things right with your brother. It's that important. It has to hit that high on the priority list. And so there are a few ways to go after making amends. I, I, I want to challenge you to do this right. And what I mean by do it right is do it first in the right way, that you would make amends in the right way. And, and, and you know, that, that it means a lot of different things. But what I'm referring to specifically here is that you would be intentional about this. That you really would, as this big truth says, make an evaluation of all your relationships. This requires intentionality. I remember uh, this was in my mid-20s. Uh, I, I had been out of high school for about, you know, 10 years or so. And uh, I, I was going through a grocery store with my wife, Jody, and we're walking through this grocery store, and I see a girl that I had briefly dated when I was in high school. And I remembered instantly that I had just not treated this girl very well, that I was very selfish and kind of demeaning, and I just brought up some bad stuff. And, and so um, I, I saw her in the frozen food section, and so I began a conversation with her. Hey, how you doing? How's life? I said, listen, I, I, just, I really need to, to ask for forgiveness for how I treated you. I, I said, I, I know, you know, I, I did not treat you well, and I was, I was not good when we were together and I didn't break up well and, and I just there's so much dishonor in it and I'm really, really sorry. Would you forgive me? And, and then she said, yeah, okay. She said, I, I thought we had fun together and, and uh, you know, no big deal. And, and she might have said that because there were eight people around us and we were in the frozen food section <laughs> of the grocery store. And, and so I, I just say that to let you know that, that I don't think that was the right way. That was, oh, by the way, Okay, And in order for us to get it in the right way, we need to go after intentionality. And you have to really do some introspection on your relationships. Now, here is the most important part of this point. You and I have the incredible tendency to forget when we have wounded other people. And when you've said something that was rude, you've done something that was unkind, when you have been the one to inflict a wound on someone else, it is very, very likely that you forgot about it within 24 hours. And maybe the last thing you did before you forgot about it is pray that they would forget about it too. So 
when I say do this in the right way, you really have to go to Jesus on it and ask him to work in your life, to, to help you remember these things when you potentially have hurt other people and then to pursue them to make amends. Jesus says in Luke 6.31, treat others as you want them to treat you. You want people to remember that you matter to them, that they, they've wounded you. You want them to say they're sorry. Friends, these are things that we need to model as well. Okay. The next way that we go after it is with the right heart. And what the right heart means is we simply admit the hurt we've caused. We admit the harm of our mindset or the harm that our actions inflicted. You just own it. Don't justify yourself. Don't rationalize it away. Don't excuse your behavior. Humbly ask for forgiveness for the role that you played in hurting them. Luke 6.37, Jesus says, don't judge another and you will not be judged. Don't condemn others or it will all come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. And so the right heart is that we want forgiveness to be the mark of our life, to forgiveness to be the liberation. And so it's with the right heart that we ask for forgiveness. And then the right time. And what this means is that you would potentially, you need to seek some objective help. Uh, We don't want to continue to wound them. And we've already wounded them, and now we want to see if we can bring peace in this relationship. And so the right time doesn't just mean when it's convenient for you. It doesn't just mean in the season where you've thought of it. It doesn't just mean since we're going through a series on Unstuck, we're bringing up these issues, every one of us goes out, and no matter what's going on in the other person's world, we have to demand forgiveness right now. That's not what it looks like at all. I know that you can probably think of one or two people in your life who every time they wound you, they wound you, and then almost instantly they're asking for forgiveness, and you're still bleeding, and, and they're wanting your forgiveness right away, and you've still got a hemorrhaging wound, and, and th- those things are, they're difficult to maneuver. It's almost like then they wound you twice. And on, honestly, friends, what I was thinking about is, is, is if we're like that, we really do make even forgiveness about us. And the scripture says we need to make it about them, we need to make it about God. In fact, in Philippians, I put this in your notes, Philippians says that each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so we simply recognize that, that it, it might be the right time for us, it might not be the right time for them. So talk to a friend, get some objective counsel. Um, I, we were thinking, what are some ways that we could, we could communicate visually that uh, this might not be the right time to have a conversation so we just thought maybe these resonate, I don't know, with you. The, f- the first picture, uh, not the right time to tell your husband that you've gambled away the health insurance premium. Uh, he needs it, right? Uh, the next picture, not the right time to have a conversation about the plank in the eye kind of a thing. Uh, just, just a little too literal there. Uh, the third, not the right time to tell your husband that you have a Facebook addiction and you haven't been watching the kids. Uh, That would probably bring up all sorts of counseling opportunities, actually. (laughs) And you know, if worse comes to worse, and and you're thinking, oh, I don't want to get bound up over this issue. Is it the right time? Isn't it the right time? Then just ask. You know, with, with humility and with grace, you simply ask, hey, is this a good time? Can we have a conversation that's kind of heartfelt? And give them the opportunity. Hey, no, it's not a good time. I'm driving in the minivan with the kids, and you're on speakerphone. Let's not talk, you know? Okay. But you're giving them the opportunity. You're not making it about you. You're making it about forgiveness. And that's what's important. Okay. Uh, I put on your notes the, the, just the simple words, I owe amends to. And I would challenge you this week that you spend some time with Jesus and ask him to help you populate that list. Who do you owe amends to? Who do you need to ask forgiveness from? And then I want to close with three key questions as you move through forgiveness. And the first key question, have you accepted God's forgiveness in your life? Have you accepted his grace personally? Do you understand that his love covers a multitude of your sins? The scripture says in Lamentations 3, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Friends, he loves you. And he has fresh mercy for you today. 
and tomorrow and again and again. And the forgiveness that he offers is through Christ on the cross where Jesus took all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our guilt and he paid the penalty for all of it. And so it's because of Jesus that the Bible, not me, the Bible declares you not guilty. It's because of Jesus that the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So friends, if you have not accepted God's forgiveness in your life, don't delay. Today, accept his forgiveness. Today, trust in the work that Christ accomplished on the cross. Today, make his forgiveness and his grace in your life a reality. Simply accept it. Say, Jesus, I accept your forgiveness over my sins. That's the first question. The second question is, have you forgiven others? And the Bible again and again says that we need to forgive, we need to be rich to forgive, quick to forgive. Romans 12, 17 says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you. And that's why in your notes I put the words, I need to forgive. And would you ask Jesus to help you populate that list as well? That you would ask him to show you where are the relationships that you have been holding on to in bitterness? Where are the wounds in your life that you have, you've encased them in a hard, hard shell? And, and it's bitterness that you're holding on to. You've created a cage and you've put that relationship or that person or that circumstance inside the cage and it's just there. And, and, and you, you, you have that, that cage and you hope that it's torturing them, but really it's just torturing you. Yeah, who do you need to forgive? Recognize that Christ is the one who's forgiven you for so much. Now we have the opportunity to forgive others and, and you might push back. You know, Mike, it is so hard for me to forgive and you don't know my story and, and you don't know how hard it is, Mike, to forgive. You're right, I don't. And you might say, well, Mike, you don't know. They, they were so close. They were my spouse, and they betrayed me. They, they were my best friend, and, and they betrayed me. They were my family member, and they betrayed me. They were, I, I, I never imagined that they could wound me so deeply. They, they were supposed to love me, and instead they hurt me. And it's so hard to forgive, and, and I can only imagine but I want you to understand that, that Jesus knows exactly what that betrayal is like. You realize only a friend can betray you. An acquaintance can't betray you. They can hurt you, but they can't betray you. Only a friend can betray. And Jesus walked in friendship and ministry for three years with Judas. And then Judas betrayed him with a kiss. Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem to shouts of the multitude saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then not six days later, they were shouting, the same people, crucify him, crucify him. And from the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He offered forgiveness to those who betrayed. And I wanna encourage you and I to walk that same road. Who do you need to forgive? Have you accepted God's forgiveness? Who do you need to forgive? And the third question is real simple. It's personal. Have you forgiven yourself? Have you forgiven yourself? And if you're honest in the quiet moment that you have with Jesus, you might identify an area of shame, an area of sin. And you're holding on to that thing and you're beating yourself up for it and you're, you're walking a road of penance. And you think if you can just say that you're an idiot enough, right? If you, can just, if you can just continue to beat yourself up over that sin, that maybe somehow you'll be holy. And friends, do you understand that if you refuse to forgive yourself when God has already forgiven you, then you're setting yourself up as a higher court than God Almighty. Then you're saying that God's judgment isn't entirely trustworthy, that you need to go ahead and finish the job. If God has declared you not guilty, who are you to declare yourself guilty? Friends, you and I, we have to, we have to settle this issue. We have to allow God to forgive us, we have to forgive others, and then we have to forgive ourselves. It's a fallen world, we're all broken, we're all messed up, we all need Jesus. 
And friends, God has settled the issue. Look what this verse says in Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Let's finish it. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are like crimson, red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. And I would tell you that when we walk the road of forgiveness, we open up that cage and we realize that the prisoner we set free was ourselves. And that's what Jesus died on the cross to provide for us. And friends, that's what it's gonna take for us to walk in health and wholeness. I wanna close uh, this whole time together with something that they do every Tuesday night in Celebrate Recovery. And together, that group reads what's called the Serenity Prayer. And the first paragraph of that prayer, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has taken, and they've made it a, a global phenomenon. It's very well known. But most people don't know the entire prayer. It's written by a theologian named Reinald Niebuhr. And so even though we don't do this very often at Overlake, I want to ask you to indulge me. Can we read the serenity prayer out loud together as we close this time? Let's go ahead and show it on the screen. Ready? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking, as he did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Lord, right now, we simply pray that the words of that prayer would become realities in our journey. That we would understand, Lord, where you would have us accept the circumstances that we face in a fallen world, where we would offer grace to ourselves and one another, and have us understand where it is that you want us to invite you in to remove our character defects, where you want us to surrender to your will so that you can take us to greater and greater places of wholeness and health. And Jesus, we do pray that you would reveal to us people that we need to make amends with, those we've wounded, those we've hurt along the way. We want to be known as a people who are makers of peace in this world. And God, we also ask that you would give us the courage and the strength to forgive those who have wounded us. Allow us to be set free as we offer forgiveness. Please walk with us and help us to remember that even as we struggle with these steps, that your grace is sufficient for us. We pray all this knowing that you are the bringer of new life, and for that we're thankful. We pray for it in our own lives with great faith and confidence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.